Oh, Father, I can just feel even my own excitement talking about these friends and talking about these pastors. Oh, Father, thank you for your saving grace in Jesus. Thank you for bonding us by the blood of Christ, the bond which extends beyond this walls. There are Christians and there are pastors doing all kinds of good work around the world, not just now, but in the years prior. We know that we here in the UAE, we come on the footsteps of others who have gone before us. And so bless ECCD, the Evangelical Christian Church of Dubai. Be with Pastor John Fulmer and the leadership as they lead in this new season of ministry with the evangel, the gospel always be their focus. For Fellowship Church, we rejoice in the arrival of Pastor Ray and Sandy. Would their time of ministry here in Dubai be fruitful and sweet? Bless Pastor Ray's preaching and leadership. Give him wisdom, especially in these early days. Father, we thank you for GTS graduation. We praise you for Samuel, Allen, and Prem. Bless their continued ministry in our church. Use them in extraordinary ways, here and in the future. Be with Pastor David Lawrence as he leads the church in Erbil, along with Pastor Andre and others. We pray for Pastor John as he serves in Turkey. Lord, we praise you for Pastor Kevin in Rhode Island, USA. Continue to use them to reach out, especially to the diverse body of students at Brown University. Thank you for Ian. Would he grow in grace as he studies? And finally, Father, we thank you for Pastor Mark Dever. Father, for all the resources he's written and produced. We thank you for Nine Marks. Father, would you strengthen Capitol Hill Baptist Church in Washington, D.C. to be a light on the hill until Jesus returns. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, now I'm equally excited to jump into God's word. So John chapter 13, verses 18 through 38. If you don't have a Bible, the text is printed in your bulletins. We won't have them up at the screens. We'll have a few points, a few things up there. But look at the bulletin or look in your Bibles, whether you have it in print or on your phone. I would love for you to follow along. We're a Bible-preaching church. These are not my thoughts. These are not my words. These are not my beliefs. This is what the Bible has to say to each of us. We're back in the upper room in John's Gospel. No crowds, no big sermons like this, nobody gathered in a big room, nobody gathered in the hillside. It's Jesus and his final words to his disciples. It's the Last Supper. And these first three verses are a bit of an introduction or even a conclusion or a transition between the previous section and this one. Betrayal was mentioned, but now comes into focus. Look at verses 18 through 20. I am not speaking of all of you, meaning the disciples. I know whom I have chosen, but the scripture will be fulfilled that he, speaking of the betrayer here, who ate my bread has lifted his heel against me. I am telling you this now before it takes place, that when it does take place, you may believe that I am he. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever receives the one I send receives me. And whoever receives me receives the one who sent me. Let's stop there. In these really transition verses, Jesus is speaking about his chosen ones. 
So it's not all who are saved, but Jesus is talking about the choosing of the disciples. Verse 19, we have a statement of foreknowledge. Jesus knows what will take place. He knows. He's telling his disciples that everything he's saying, that everything he's doing is so that they may believe. Remember, that's the point of the book. If you've been tracking with us since the beginning, at the end of John chapter 20, John writes that all this was written so that we may believe and have life in his name. That's the purpose of John's gospel. The signs, the speeches, the sermons, same goal, whether to the crowds, whether at an intimate dinner table with his disciples, the goal was one and the same. It's so that we would believe in Jesus, that he is the only one who can save us. Verse 19, Jesus says, I'm telling you this now, because while you may be confused today, there's going to be a time when you're going to look back and it's going to click. You're going to understand. It's called hindsight. You've probably heard the phrase, hindsight is 2020. Well, once Jesus' death and his resurrection takes place, everything will become clear to them. In verse 20, at that time, heralds would be sent out with the message that Jesus is Lord. First the disciples and then Christians throughout all the ages, including us. To receive a messenger is to believe the gospel and to follow Christ. That was Christ's mission, and it's the mission he gives each and every one of us. Christ's physical presence in just some hours was going to end. And so what Jesus is saying to the disciples and what he's saying to us here in Matthew chapter 28 as well is that now we are his ambassadors. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, we have a ministry of reconciliation. Now are we, we are his spokespeople. Well, in our text today, we're going to see the next step forward toward the cross. A little more time is going to pass there at the dinner, and we're going to see Jesus' words to his disciples, and we're going to see three things in this private moment. Three things. We're going to see a betrayal, a commandment, and a denial. So three points, three things. In the middle section, we see a commandment to follow, but it's interesting that it's surrounded by first a betrayal and then a denial, and then in the very middle between those two scenes, we have a commandment, a commandment of epic proportions. <clears throat> so let's first look, number one, at a betrayal. So it's at the end of the meal. Jesus makes a stunning announcement. Verse 21, after saying these things, Jesus was troubled in his spirit and testified, truly, truly, I say to you, one of you will betray me. Do you see how stunning that statement is? And let's even just back up a second to earlier in that verse, Jesus was troubled in his spirit. I mean, that is shocking, isn't it? Jesus, the, the Son of God, Jesus the Savior, Jesus the Messiah, Jesus God in the flesh was troubled in his spirit. Why? Well, because he was to be betrayed, denied, the cross 
awaited him. He's troubled here because one of his friends, one of his 12, would turn against him. This is a man who walked alongside Jesus. This is a man who heard Jesus preach. This is a man who served with him. This is a man who carried the money bag. And Jesus is telling the team, hey team, hey disciples, I'm troubled in my spirit. One of you, one of you will betray me. Jesus was troubled. This is the kind of trouble that's not sin, that's not due to your sin. John Piper calls it a holy turmoil. Jesus had a holy turmoil in his heart. This is a very vivid language. This betrayal had troubled Jesus. Jesus, fully God, fully man, sitting at a dinner with his men, was troubled. Well, friends, Jesus knows the pain of betrayal. Friend, if you've been betrayed, you have a Savior who's felt betrayal. If you've been betrayed by a close friend, Jesus knows. He knows. He's felt what you feel. He's been there. He's the great high priest who's not unable to sympathize with you. He's been in your shoes. And so you can go to him for comfort. Well, in this case, in this scene, the betrayer stays silent, at least for now. None of the disciples could imagine who... It could be, verse 22, they looked around. They looked at each other. It was a bit of a staring contest. Have you ever engaged in a staring contest? It's when you stare at someone right in front of you. They stare at you and you see who's going to blink first. Right? The goal is to not blink first. This was a bit of a staring contest, but this staring contest didn't work. No one blinked. No one raised their hand. No one confessed. The disciples couldn't figure it out. They're just looking around. Uh, it's not me. Uh, it, it could be you. It, it couldn't be you. Uh, you may, maybe, I don't know. Uh, they couldn't figure it out. They're just looking around. Definitely not me. Maybe you. This is a bit scary, isn't it? Listen to this. Judas's outward behavior was so similar to all the rest of the disciples that it wasn't obvious who the betrayer was. But you see that none of the disciples knew. We have no indication that Judas would have won the vote for disciple most likely to be the bad guy. It's actually not that hard to look like a Christian, is it? If you think about it, well, friends, let me say this twice. Friends, looking like a follower of Christ doesn't make you a follower of Christ. Looking like a Christian doesn't make you a Christian. Looking like a Christian doesn't mean you are a Christian. My favorite illustration of this is a bit of an extreme illustration. It's a true story. It took place 
over a decade ago near where I used to live. It's about seven men who escaped from prison. They were called the Texas Seven. Every police officer in the U.S. searched for them, but they successfully hid themselves from the police and from the authorities for some time because, here's what they did, because they moved into a poor neighborhood, and guess who they pretended to be? American evangelical missionaries. And the disguise worked. The fugitives carried big study Bibles. They talked about how they were burdened to save the country. They learned Christian words. They learned to pray in Jesus' name. They copied the behaviors of Christians. And the seven convicted felons, they were eventually caught. But people were stunned by how long they evaded the police just by pretending to be Christians. Now, no, I know that's an extreme example. Whether intentionally trying to deceive or not, looking like a Christian doesn't make you a Christian. Having observable traits of a follower of Christ doesn't mean you're a true follower of Christ. Attending and, and giving, maybe you just gave to the offering, talking about the Bible, helping and looking and living like a Christian doesn't automatically make you a Christian. Your parents don't make you a Christian. Your passport doesn't make you a Christian. Nothing you can do can make you a Christian. And no one is born a Christian. No one is born a Christian. Each of us are born as a boy or girl and need a personal saving grace. Each of us on our own need to personally repent of our sin and believe in Jesus to save us. You know why we talk so much about conversion here at Redeemer? It's because many of us come from so-called Christian countries or have Christian backgrounds. And I'm worried... Just as a pastor, I'm worried that some of us think we're Christians when we're really not. I know that's a bit of a, a bold statement. I'm worried that some of us think we're Christians when we're really not. It's almost as if some of us need to see that we're lost before we can be saved. Could some of us be thinking we're Christians simply because we're not Muslims or Hindus or Buddhists or Jews? But we're not Christians by default. You're given physical life at birth, but to be saved, you must be given spiritual life. And I want to talk specifically just for a moment of two to our uni students, to our teens, to our tweens, to our kids here in this Room, I know there are many of you here. I want to ask you today, have you owned faith in Jesus for yourself? Now, kids, listen. Tweens, listen. I know you may be distracted right now, but I want to ask you, have you owned faith in Jesus yourself? Because you can't live off your parents' faith in Christ. And every day you wait to make a decision about following Christ is a decision to not follow Christ. 
I mean, do you see that? This is not just for our kids, tweens, teens, university students. It's for all of us. Do you see how every day you wait to make a decision about following Christ is actually a decision to not follow Christ today? And I'm worried because none of us are promised decades more of life. Life is a vapor. We have no idea what tomorrow holds. This gospel of John is for you. It is written so that you may believe. You see the signs and wonders and miracles and sermons of Jesus. This is for you. This is for us. So kids, tweens, teens, if this is if this is you, if this is something you're thinking about, if you're not yet a follower of Christ, I urge you to talk to your parents if they're, they are followers of Christ, or you can talk to a leader in the church or your, your youth leader. You can come talk to me afterwards. I love speaking to children. love speaking to tweens and teens. I love university students and did ministry among students for many years. This gospel is so that you may believe. This gospel is so that we may believe. Repent and believe, for there is no other way. Now, here's one of my dreams. Just one last word to the younger ones here. Here is one of my dreams as your pastor. It's that revival in our church would start with you. That revival in our church would start with you, with genuine conversions among our littlest ones up to our tweens and teens and university students, that you'd be the model, that you'd be the example, that you'd be the encouragement to the rest of us, that many of you would be saved in the days to come. Lord, have mercy and bring this to pass. Well, back to our scene. You just said none of the disciples, they could figure it out. Who's the betrayer? Who's, who's the one who's not following Christ here? Who's the one who is untrustworthy. They didn't know, but they sure did want to know. Look at verse 23. One of his disciples, whom Jesus loved, was reclining at table at Jesus' side. This is John, the gospel writer, referring to himself. I know it sounds a bit strange to refer to yourself in that way. Maybe it's a little less strange than naming yourself, but it seems to be a way that Jesus talked about the Apostle John. So it's John. John's reclining at table. Peter seems to be some distance away. And Peter really, really wants to know who the betrayer is. We've already seen Peter has a big mouth. He also has a big curiosity. And in verse 24, he motions to John. We don't know how. Does he wave to John? Does, is he pointing at John? Do they have some secret ap apostolic sign that he's that he's doing there to get John's attention. We don't know, but he's getting John's attention. And if Peter has to motion to John to figure it out, it's quite possibly uh, that Peter's seating assignment wasn't close to John's seating assignment. Instead of being at the head of the table, Peter might have been at the end of the table. We don't know, but what we do know is that John was at Jesus' side and being at the right hand of Jesus. Remember, they were climbing on the ground and eating, and so all John would have had to do to talk to Jesus would have been to just turn around this way, and Jesus' face would have been right there. Verse 25, John could turn to him. He asks him, 
Who is it? Verse 26, Jesus answered, It is he to whom I will give this morsel of bread when I have dipped it. So when he had dipped the morsel, he gave it to Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot. Now it was customary at the feast for the master ceremonies to take unleavened bread. Kids, this was a bit like a soft, flat pancake, probably not a chocolate chip pancake with syrup, but you get the idea. What would you do with it? You'd actually put lamb inside of it. It's like a savory crepe, like a shawarma perhaps. The host would dip it into a sauce with bitter herbs. These herbs were a reminder of the sufferings of Israel and their 40 years in the wilderness. But it wouldn't just contain bitter herbs, it would contain some fruit that would sweeten it up. It would remind them of the entrance into the promised land. The host would hand one of these out to each person there at the dinner. The master of the feast was representing the Messiah who would one day provide the benefits of this sacrificed lamb. Every Passover, the people of God, they would look back at their experience of God's faithfulness to them. They'd look back at all that God had done for them. And, and, and then they would look forward to the work that God would do in salvation through the shed blood of Jesus. God's faithfulness in the past and in the present would be a reminder that God would be faithful in the future. And now here's the important thing. When you accept that bread and lamb, you're signifying your willingness to accept salvation and fellowship with the Messiah. That you would accept that fellowship and salvation of which the Messiah would provide. And so here, Jesus gives that bread out. He gives it out to Judas as well and talks with him. And what does he say? Or what does this say about where Judas is seated? Well, to be transparent, we don't have the seating chart. I don't know if you've ever seen this. There isn't one. A seating chart of where everybody sat at the Last Supper. That document, that picture doesn't exist. And so Leonardo da Vinci's painting, you probably have seen it, The Last Supper. And all other paintings are actually conjecture as to where the men sat. It does seem that John was next to him per verse 25, and Judas was at least close enough for them somehow to have a private conversation. Maybe Judas is at his right hand, or maybe John is at his right hand. Judas maybe at his left hand in places of honor. We don't know. We just simply don't know. But Jesus hands it to Judas, and he says in verse 27, what you're going to do, do quickly. Now, here's the question. Why didn't Jesus giving Judas that pancake, that unleavened bread, point him out as the betrayer? Well, it's possible because what was done for Judas was done for all the men as part of the ceremony. Everyone received a piece, part of the ritual. Maybe it just didn't click in their minds. Even though Verse 28 seems clear. No one could identify it was Judas. They think Judas leaves for other purposes. Verse 29, he's the treasurer. Perhaps he's paying for the dinner. Maybe he's giving money to the poor. They think good motives of Judas. But we know, and the disciples would know in hindsight, that Judas is leaving to betray Jesus. Satan had entered him. This means he's given control away to the enemy. Jesus knew this, but the other men were clueless. I mean, 
Church, do you see that even Judas, while on a mission of betrayal, Jesus is extending the gracious offer of fellowship to him? There's still time. I mean, do you see the grace of Jesus as he extends the hand of fellowship to Judas? Even hours before betrayal, Bible scholar D.A. Carson says that Judas giving this bread was a final gesture of supreme love. It was an example of love. Jesus knew full well what Judas was plotting, and he's still extending the hand of fellowship. This is an astonishing love. Judas, I know the plans that you have for me, but it's not too late. Well, what's Judas' response? Well, Judas seems to get out of the room as fast as he can. What does verse 30 not tell us? Well, it doesn't say he ate the bread. The verse ends by saying, and it was night. Perhaps to imply it's dark outside, it's nighttime outside, can't see outside, but it's yet even darker in Judas's heart and mind. No, Jesus here is extraordinarily patient and extraordinarily loving up until the end. Oh, friends, this is our Savior, Redeemer Church. This is our Savior. He has an astonishing love. Now, maybe you're watching the scene unfold and you're reflecting in your life. You're thinking about the disciples. You're thinking about Judas and you realize, hey, I'm actually a lot more like Judas than I am the rest of the disciples. I've actually walked away from God. This is my first time back in a church service in months or years, or maybe I've just started coming back, or maybe something I did even last night was a betrayal of God's love for me. And you can identify with, with Judas, maybe these last couple years of obstacles and trouble, maybe since March of 2020 when COVID hit, maybe your life went spiraling out of control, maybe you fell into some kind of unrepentant sin, and maybe you look at this text and you look at Judas and you realize that you have regrets that you're seeing your sin maybe today even for the first time you're seeing it for what it is a betrayal of God I hope you see that as long as you wake up another morning and today's another morning God's mercies are new again each morning his mercies are new and his mercy is more I love singing that song his mercy is more than our sin than all of our sins Right? An ocean without a floor and without a shore. That's where our sin goes when we follow Christ. It goes away as far as the east is from the west. And so if you're hearing this and you're in some sin, there still is time. You have breath. Every single one of us in this room right now is breathing. And as long as you have another breath, it's another moment of grace that you can repent and turn from your sin. Whatever you did last year, whatever you did last night, Judas had this opportunity in his last moments before the betrayal you too friend brother sister you too friend child adults whether you're six or whether you're 66 you have time look to jesus trust in him to save you trust in him to forgive you if you're a believer who's gone wayward god loves forgiving sinners in just a few hours, chronologically here, Jesus will head to the cross. He will suffer and he will die for his people, for the sins of his people. And Jesus offers fellowship to Judas. He offers fellowship to all of us, to the young and to the old, to the man, to the woman, to the boy, to the girl, to 
all passport holders and to every human being on the face of the earth. Anyone and everyone can follow Jesus. Isn't that good news? Oh, this is great news. Great news. Even in the midst of betrayal, Jesus is gracious. Anyone and everyone can follow Jesus. Well, in a few minutes, we're going to see not just a betrayal, we're going to see a denial from another one of the 12. But in between the two, we see a commandment. So that's point number two. And it's no accident that we see this commandment right here in the midst of a betrayal and in the midst of a denial. Verse 31, it's a turning point. Jesus said, it's time for the Son of Man to be glorified. This is point number two, a commandment. It's time for the Son of Man to be glorified. The departure of Judas, it sets everything in motion. It sets the last hours in motion. Jesus is marching to the cross. Jesus wasn't coerced into the cross. Jesus wasn't forced into the cross. Jesus went willingly to the cross. He knows it's time. To glorify means to reveal who he is, to magnify the truth about himself. His death and resurrection will show that he is the overcomer of death and judgment. Verse 33, Jesus calls his disciples little children. Now, they weren't kids. These disciples, they, they weren't kids. This is a term of affection. He tells them he's not going to be with them much longer and where he's going for now, they can't go. Until then, here's how you live. By a new commandment, verse 34, that you love one another. But he doesn't stop there, does he? There's a new commandment that you love one another just as I have loved you. And I loved how Lisa Chong Hoi read that. She emphasized just. Love that Bible reading. Just. It's an important word here. Let me, let me go back again. That you love one another just as I have loved you. You also are to love one another. Now, wait a minute. You might be asking, is this really new? Is this really a new commandment? The Bible's full of commands to love, Old Testament, New Testament, even from the mouth of Jesus. I thought we were supposed to love the Lord our God with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength, and to love our neighbor as ourselves. Well, that sounds like a pretty old command to me. What's new about this command? Well, in a sense, it is new. It's a greater command, far more intense than anything Jesus has said about love. Think about it. Sure, there's the golden rule. Sure, there's Matthew 7. There's a Sermon on the Mount. That's a great commandment. Love your neighbor as yourself. But this is even more. He's saying to his disciples, Peter, James, John, and to all of you, love each other just, love one another just, as I have loved you. Love one another just as I have loved you. Love one, an one another just with the same affection, with the same intensity that I have loved you. Disciples, we love each other. You love one another 
as much as I've loved you. I'm not telling you to love as much as you want to be loved. Now, that would be a great love. That is a great love. Jesus was asking them, and he's asking us to do something even greater. Love each other with the same intensity that I've loved you. Now, this is radical. I mean, you see what Jesus is calling us to do here. He's calling us to love each other in the same way he has loved us. I don't know if you caught that in your reading this week or in your community groups. This is Jesus saying, love someone with the same passion, with the same compassion that he loves us with. This is mind-blowing. And we saw an example of it in the previous passage, didn't we? Jesus washing the disciples' feet. We see an example of it in this passage where he holds out the hand of fellowship to Judas, the betrayer. This is a radical love. Jesus is saying you do whatever it takes, even if it means washing your disciples' feet, even if it means attempting to reconcile with a betrayer and offering fellowship to him. Jesus is giving us these examples right here in John chapter 13, and he says you love one another in the same way that I have loved you. Why do we do this? Well, there's lots of reasons, but he focuses on one. Verse 35, love one another with the same passion and the same compassion that I have for you. Why? Well, because by this, all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. How will the world know that we're Christians? Well, certainly we tell them, and we should. It's called evangelism. That's sharing the gospel with the aim to persuade. God is perfect and holy. All are sinful and separated from God. We're destined to death. But the good news is that Jesus left heaven fully God, fully man. He lived a perfect life. He went to the cross. He died on the cross to save us from our sins. He rose from the dead, and he reigns right now at the right hand of the Father. All of that is true, and all of that we share with a, a sense of urgency and fervor. But what adorns the gospel? What supports the gospel? What brings the gospel to life? What's a drama that's displayed before the world? Well, we see it right here. The way the non-believers look at us will impact the way they think of Christ. What's the way non-believers see the gospel lived out? They see it when Christians love one another. It's a stunning and powerful love, but you might be thinking, maybe if you're new to church, or maybe if you've somehow uh, been on the sidelines, you might be thinking, well, this, isn't this an easy thing? It, shouldn't it be easy to, to love other Christians? I'm a Christian. To love other Christians, to love other church members. Is that really the mark that the world's going to see Christ? Wouldn't you think it would be something more difficult? Well, friends, I wish that was the case. I wish it was easier. It should be. It should be easier for Christians to love other Christians. But we all know this is, this is a lot harder than it sounds. I mean, think for a moment. It's often the people that we love the most who hurt us the most. It's often the people we love the most that we hurt the most. It's hard to get along with people in our own biological family at times. So it makes sense that it would be hard for fellow Christians at times to get along with one another in God's church and God's family as part of God's family. So what is Jesus saying here? He's not saying put up with other Christians. He's not saying just be patient with other Christians. He's not saying uh, just love them uh, in the same way that you uh, should love your neighbor. He is saying love them with the same intensity that I have loved you. Oh, Redeemer Church, Jesus is calling us to radically love one another. What does this look like? Well, I could have written a hundred points. 
but just three overarching categories for today. Number one, be extravagant with our forgiveness. Let's be extravagant with our forgiveness. Christians can model a Christ-like love by looking out for anyone we've hurt or for any believer who's hurt us. If Jesus can extend the hand of fellowship to Judas and if Jesus can wash his disciples' feet, we can look to reestablish a relationship with someone that we've been distant with. Take a look at your life. I encourage all of us to do this, to look at your life and to see if there are relationships that have been fractured. You take the first step. You apologize where needed. Maybe it's a family member. Maybe it's someone you haven't talked to for a while. You've ignored, you've intentionally avoided. Maybe it's a church member you've hurt. Because Jesus has forgiven us, we can go on and forgive others. Actually, I should say it like this. Because Jesus has forgiven us, we must forgive others. Well, number two, let's be uplifting with our encouragement. Church, let's be uplifting with our encouragement. Let's pray for our fellow church members. Let's tell them what we've prayed for. Write a handwritten note of encouragement to them. Let's pray Psalm 141.3 for ourselves. Set a guard, O Lord, over our mouth. Keep watch over the door of my lips. Let's pray and ask God to help us say only helpful things. Let's think and pray before we speak. Let's make sure what we're saying is uplifting and encouraging and edifying. Let's as a church be an Ephesians 4 kind of church. You know what an Ephesians 4 kind of church is? It's a church that would let no, no unwholesome word proceed from our mouths, but only such a word as is used for edification according to the need of the moment so that it might bring grace to those who hear. Oh, would we be an Ephesians 4 kind of church? Would we pray? Would we think intentionally about who needs encouragement? Would we not only stop our own slander of others, but would we not be safe to slander around? Would we run away from gossip? Now think about this. In the book of Genesis, you have Joseph. And you have him there in Potiphar's house there, and you have him being approached by his wife in an inappropriate manner and what does joseph do well joseph runs right he 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 runs he he runs away from trouble i wonder what it would look like if our church ran away from gossip and ran away from slander think about the transforming effect it would have on our church if as soon as we hear gossip or slander we stop it and if we can't we just run we just run away from it. We take no part in it. Redeemer Church, be uplifting. Let's be edifying with our words. Let's be an Ephesians 4 kind of church. And number three, let's be relentless with our service. Let's be relentless with our service. Meals cooked or ordered for others. Debts covered or forgiven. Sitting with the sick and hurting. Learning. Studying Bible and theology for others. Labor hard to understand and obey it. Grow in your knowledge and love of God so that you can serve others in teaching them the ways of God. Take an equipping class or two. Join the next women's discipleship track. Register for the next GTS Foundations year. Participate in a community group. Meet one-on-one just to read the Bible together or in a small group. Weep with those who weep. 
Rejoice with those who rejoice. Teach our children the gospel here on Sunday mornings. Wake up early to set up this room. Serve community group members by caring for them spiritually. Call someone on the phone to talk and to pray. Use your skills to bless others in the church by coaching or mentoring or training other believers in your field of work. Provide a job for another believer. Babysit for a young family. Homeschool parents with experience can help new homeschool parents. Give something away instead of selling it. Help someone move. Serve at a wedding, pay for someone's meal, pick someone up at the airport at 3 a.m. Go out of your way to give someone a ride here on Sunday mornings. Help a single woman in the church take their car to the mechanic for them. Offer to help someone with their chores or with their cleaning. Teach one of our new Afghan brothers English. Have a family over to your home that you've never had before. Give someone a place to live if needed. Give to our church's benevolence Model what it looks like if you're married to have a godly marriage by inviting singles and young marrieds into your home just to be with you. Pray for your fellow members daily by using our membership directory and just going through page by page by page and praying for your fellow members. Help a fellow student study for an exam. Oh, friends, those are just a few dozen examples. I could go on and on, but soon it'll be, it'll be lunchtime, and I vowed not to steal Dr. Adam Brown record for longest sermon in the history of Redeemer Church, which by the way was an incredible sermon, brother, and one day I will steal your record, but it's not today. It's not today. Church, church, those are just some examples. You can come up with your own list. Be relentless with our service. Just remember Jesus washes feet. These dirty feet of these men, including a betrayer and one who would deny him. He holds out the hand of fellowship to Judas. We can't cut corners. This command is radical. And that's point number two. Finally, point number three, and briefly, a denial. A denial. We'll be brief here. There are just three verses which end our chapter. A quick scene, one of which many of you have heard before. Look at verses 36 through 38. Simon Peter said to him, Lord, where are you going? Jesus answered him, where I am going, you cannot follow me now, but you will follow afterward. Peter said to him, Lord, why can I not follow you now? I will lay down my life for you. Jesus answered, will you lay down your life for me? Truly, truly, I say to you, the rooster will not crow till you have denied me three times. Okay, here's, here's the end. Here we have Simon, big mouth, Peter, and here he goes again. He asked the obvious question, Lord, uh, we're confused. Uh, where are you going? Is this a road trip? Uh, you're going without us? I, I want to go. We've been with you for three years. Let, just, we'll, we'll get on that camel. We'll go with you. Jesus doesn't exactly tell him where, but he says, Peter, where I'm going, you can't come now. Later, you can come, just not now. Peter says, verse 37, I want to come. I'll do whatever it takes. I'll even lay down my life. Verse 38, Jesus says, will you really do that? Will you really lay down your life? I tell you, you're actually going to deny me three times. Now, Peter's denial is quite public. It's written in the scriptures. We, we see it in, here in the Gospels. It's quite public, not only in that day, but it's something etched in our minds today, both from the scriptures. But you can't live in Israel. You can't live in Jerusalem today and not be reminded of Peter's denial. How often would you hear a rooster crow? If you lived in Israel, you would hear 
roosters crow every morning, every day you would hear their noise. And there's actually a church in Israel with the nickname, the Church of the Rooster. And there's a statue of the rooster in the courtyard. And there's even, you could see this even on the internet, pictures of a golden rooster featured prominently from the sanctuary's roof, just in case you forgot Peter's denial of Jesus. Well, eventually we will see Peter denied Jesus three times. The rooster would crow. How amazing that Jesus was betrayed and Peter denied even knowing him. These were his friends. These were his ministry partners. And here's what's amazing. Peter was actually right. Well, Jesus was right and in a way, Peter was right. Peter did deny Jesus the rooster would crow, but that wasn't the end of the story, was it? How did Peter die? We know that Peter ended up laying his life down for Jesus. There are some accounts that say that he was crucified upside down because he didn't count himself worthy to go through the same death Jesus did. We don't know for sure, but we know Peter died for his faith. That he died not denying the faith. It wasn't the end of his story. Well, it didn't happen right then, but it did happen. Now, what does this mean? Well, a lot of things. One, friend, if you've turned away from Jesus, there's hope. As long as you have another breath, as long as you wake up tomorrow, you can turn to Jesus or turn back to Jesus. Peter denied Jesus. Yeah, Judas went on to betray. He died shortly after. Peter, the rock. Peter was a leader of the church. And yet, not long before he became a leader in the church, he denied Jesus. A friend, if you've denied Jesus, come back. Come back. And if you have a friend who's denied Jesus or a friend who's left the faith, don't stop praying for them. Don't stop reaching out to them. We don't know the end of the story. Peter denies Jesus. Peter's a leader of the church. God can do anything. Let's pray for ourselves and let's pray for them. Let's do that now as we close. Let's pray. Well, Father, we close just with that very prayer. Lord, we know that you are the great redeemer, that Jesus has redeemed us. And so no matter what we did last year, last month, last week, or last night, Father, that doesn't have to be the end of our story. And so we pray for any in this room who may have turned away, would they come back? We pray for any of our friends who may have turned away, would they come back? Father, we pray for any in this room who have never followed Jesus when they start following Jesus. We pray for our kids, our tweens, our teens, youth, our university students, our young adults, our young marrieds, our older marrieds. Everyone in this room, oh Father, if there's anyone who doesn't know you, would they repent and believe today as this next breath is a breath of grace? Oh Father, for those of us who believe, would we be encouraged today? That your love is extraordinary. That your love is astonishing. Would we marvel in that love and would we love others with that same intensity which you've loved us. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.